morning we're in Mark 10, Mark 10, 1 through 9. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send, to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time in the word this morning. I pray that we would put your word uh, above the word of man. I pray that it would be sufficient for us in all things. I pray that our hearts and minds would turn toward it right now, have all of our attention on it. We wouldn't be distracted by things of this world, and that we would uh, be granted wisdom from you. Please be with Pastor Dan as he explains it to us, and that your spirit would speak through him. Amen. Well, chapter 10 of Mark is about discipleship. It's about discipleship on the way, on the way to Jerusalem, on the way through Judea to Jerusalem. You remember Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem to the cross, and he has called his disciples and giving them a divine benediction. He's also given them a divine call to discipleship that they would follow him on the way. And chapter 10 there is going to trace for us a few different areas of discipleship on the way, what that looks like. We'll see marriage, we'll see children, we'll see possessions. It'll work through each of those for us. And we kind of start this morning with marriage. And its order, its place in the order shows its importance. We're really going to look at the topic of divorce and remarriage in the context of marriage this morning. We'll look at Mark 10 and then we'll, we'll make a few observations from other texts. I'll go ahead and say this is never an easy topic to speak on, and it's not because Scripture doesn't have something to say about it, it certainly does, but there are a few other factors. We know that God's intended purpose for marriage did not include divorce, and yet we also know that God has chosen and unconditionally loves those who have been divorced. And so we want to walk through it with a sense of commitment to the word of the Lord, that we don't shy away from what he says, and yet at the same time with a heart of compassion towards those who have walked through divorce. Second, I know that emotions run high when speaking on divorce, whether you're counseling in the midst of people thinking of that or, or you're speaking on it now and people have experiences. It's difficult to speak clearly. It's difficult for people to hear clearly because everything is filtered very personally and very emotionally through the experience that they've had. Thirdly, it's difficult because relationships are confusing and unique. There are principles which we will go over today, and there is truth, and yet how you take that truth and you apply it to every single relationship can some, needs much wisdom, needs much care. 
So as we look at these questions of the Pharisees and we look at Jesus' answer today, I just ask you to receive the word of the Lord on it. You may not fall exactly where I fall in some of the conclusions, but I ask that you receive the word of the Lord on it. And remember, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of destruction. The the way that we're looking for is not what is my personal opinion, not what you're comfortable with, but what does the Lord say that leads to life, that leads to thriving? One more introductory comment. I promise I'll eventually get into it. Some of you here are single, young people, not married. Don't check out. (laughs) This is for you. Who knows what the Lord has in store for you and in the future? And as a Christian, there is application in this that has bleed over application to other areas of your life. And if nothing else, you belong to a church family where there are many married couples. How do you encourage? How do you come alongside? How do you be a good church member? There's some of you that will hear it and it will be just annoying. (laughs) I would say again, submit yourself to the word of the Lord. I can't step into everyone's experience and know exactly everyone's issue, but listen to what the word of the Lord said. Then for some, it may cause sadness, some grief. I know all of us, there are people here who are divorced. There's people here who, uh, who everyone is touched by it in some way. And for you, as you hear it, just remember that the Lord who instituted marriage is the same God who is big-hearted and restorative and forgiving. So hear the word of the Lord, if you would, this morning. So we come to chapter 10. Jesus is beginning his way to Jerusalem. We see that. And to chapter 10, he is on the way. He is making his journey. We get to chapter 11, you have the triumphal entry. So chapter 10, he is on his way. The disciples are following. He gets started here and almost immediately a crowd starts gathering around him and the Pharisees come and they catch him again. We've seen the Pharisees question Jesus before so by now we know this is not honest questions. They're testing him and you'll see the intensity of this build because where before they were sending delegates from Jerusalem out to Galilee to where Jesus was now Jesus is headed right towards the the epicenter of Pharisaism, right towards the epicenter of their religious power and influence. And they are going to become more aggressive and more defensive and more bold in their attacks upon Jesus. And so we see that. And so they're trying to trap him and they decide to do so with a difficult question. It wasn't like it was easier in that day. They ask him, how about divorce? In verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, how is this a trap? We'll see in a minute the Old Testament text that they are going to go to. And Jesus is going to tell them what that Old Testament text actually means. But there's a whole variety of applications, a whole variety of ways people understand that Old Testament text. And so my guess is they're thinking, no matter what Jesus says, he, he, people are going to be angry with him. He, he's not going to get away scot-free. But probably even more of a trap is they know that Herod Antipas... The, the leader at the time, who we were just introduced to not long ago when 
through John the Baptist, that Herod has been divorced, that his brother's wife, Herodias, divorced Philip, Herod's brother, and Herod married her. And John the Baptist is bold to condemn that and says, that is not right, you need to repent of that. And John the Baptist lost his head for that. (laughs) So they're setting up Jesus, hey, why don't you get involved here? They're trying to get him in trouble. Jesus, when he recognizes the Pharisees are asking a dishonest question, goes to his normal routine and he turns the tables and asks them a question. So he says in verse 3, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? The the Pharisees then respond, verse 4, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So they're going back to Deuteronomy 24. We, We won't turn there right now, but you can write that down and look at it later. That's where they're going to. Old Testament speaks of divorce in a few different areas, but this is the only passage that really speaks procedurally of what takes place after a divorce. And already the Pharisees are missing the point. Because what is taking place here is Moses, and we'll develop it here, but Moses is going after the men. Because they're not taking seriously marriage. They're not taking the covenant of marriage seriously and they're abusing it. And so what Moses is doing is, is limiting what who can be divorced, for what reasons. But really he's taking it, because divorce is so rampant right now, he's trying to provide some protection, some dignity for the women who in that society had very little power. And so he's offering a way forward that would be protective for the women. But the Pharisees are not reading that at all. So they go to Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy 24, there's the phrase that becomes the center of the argument of what's allowable for divorce. And it says in there, if a man finds anything indecent... In a woman. I know that sounds hard to hear, right? Anything indecent. Again, in that culture, it would be the men who held the power, who could move forward with divorce. And so there becomes this argument and an interpretation of what does anything indecent mean? We've talked about the Mishnah before, where all the, the Pharisees put their tradition. There's all kinds of stuff in the Mishnah about what does anything indecent mean that makes a divorce allowable. And so you have on the strict conservative end, they, they focus on indecent as very limited to gross sexual immorality. That is someone who is married in the covenant of marriage, having sex with someone outside of the covenant of marriage stands as the grounds for divorce. But you also have, on the the more broad perspective of it from the Pharisees, they don't focus on indecent, they focus on anything. To the fact that they're actually in the Mishnah, like if, you know, if she burns dinner, it's over. And so there becomes this uh, scale in which they are abusing the whole topic. And again, the the problem here is that they're actually missing the point. When you read Deuteronomy, it's not giving grounds for divorce. It's saying, listen, men, you're abusing this. You're abusing the sanctity of marriage and you're abusing divorce. 
in that you're just walking away from these women. And so Moses is saying, you need to at least provide a certificate of divorce for the woman so that it gives her some sort of dignity. It gives her some sort of protection. It allows her to remarry. Again, in that culture, it would have been very important. And so he's going after the ill effects that come from divorce. He's coming after the, the laziness, the selfishness, the adultery of men as the leading cause of causing this divorce. And he's saying, because of these ill effects, here's how we rein it in. But the Pharisees are saying, no, Moses is saying divorce is good. It's all right. So Jesus will respond to them in verse 5. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus, in moving the argument back from a a discussion about how should we handle divorce being so rampant moves it back into creation itself into God instituting and putting forth marriage what is God's intended purpose in the decrees of creation for marriage and two things jump right out at you intimacy and permanence intimacy and permanence You, you notice that and from the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He says it this way. What he's doing is he's elevating. If you look at the Ten Commandments, there is the commandment in there. Honor your father and your mother. That's the relationship after honoring God that is, is raised to the highest level. That we are to honor our father and our mother. And here in creation, and now Jesus in his teaching is saying, I'm elevating a relationship above that. I'm saying, honor your husband or your wife. You honor them. That relationship is the the only relationship higher than that, is honoring the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind. After that comes the marriage relationship. That's where it's elevated to. It's an intimacy that two become one. We'll see why he says that in just a moment. But then there's a permanence to it. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So divorce is happening, yes. We'll see that, that there is an allowance for divorce. But Jesus is saying before we get into some weird discussion on divorce, let's start with marriage. Let's start with the beauty of marriage, its intended purpose. It's good. It's an exalted stance as the one only relationship that is below is your relationship to the Lord. That's where we start. It, the, the purpose of marriage and its intended purpose was permanence. Divorce was never part of its intended purpose. Yes, because of the curse, because of the hardness of heart, we'll look at some of those allowances, but its intended purpose is intimacy and permanence. And that's where he starts. That's why when you sit in premarital counseling and you talk, you don't bring up divorce in premarital counseling as, well, let me go ahead and just tell you, here's your two or three ways you can get out of this. 
It's not part of it. And to think of it in creation would be impossible. Malachi chapter 2, the last prophet of the Old Testament, it re-emphasizes for us that just because allowances have been made, and Moses has talked about it, doesn't mean that divorce then has, has moved into part of God's intention and purpose in marriage. The people in Malachi are, are, are coming and they're worshiping the Lord, but the Lord looks at them and sees their hearts and says, I want nothing to do with this type of worship. And what's very fundamental to their heart of worship, that they're coming and renewing their covenant with God, and yet they're all breaking their covenants with their husbands and wives. And so he says in there, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking but godly offspring? So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not leave his wife, who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. He's saying you need to look on this covenant. You need to get this right. You can come and worship and pretend like you're renewing your covenant with me, but you're totally ignoring what God has called you to do. Pressing into us again. Divorce is not the intention of God. Again, by mentioning then the two sexes, male and female, Jesus is driving home further the abuses that men are making to marriage. That there are two people made in God's image that enter this covenant of marriage. And the man is not the Lord and the woman the subject in the marriage, but they come together and the two become one and God remains the Lord of that marriage. And so he's driving that point home. And we'll see in his conclusion, he drives it home even further. But he says, you're looking at Moses' way out, but, but Moses is saying husbands are abusing the covenant of marriage. Uh, he's protecting women here. Here's what the Lord intended. Male and female come together. The two become one. Equals come together, but with different rules. And they come, and the Lord is the Lord of that union in that marriage. And so we come to verses 10 through 12. As often happens after Jesus performs miracles or does teaching, whether it's with the scribes, the Pharisees, the crowds, whatever it is, then he moves on, and in a more private section, he follows up with the disciples, and they're often unsure exactly what they saw or what they heard. They, they need further instruction, so the same thing happens here. Verse 10, in the house, the disciples ask him again about this matter. So they ask him, what about divorce? What about remarriage? What are you teaching us exactly? And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Again, this is startling. And first, culturally for them, in that moment, if a husband committed adultery against a wife, he's really like sinning against that woman's father. 
or if he cheats with a woman against that, that woman's husband. And he's saying here, no, the covenant is between man and woman. You're sinning against your partner. You're sinning against your wife. But then he ups the ante for the wife as well. And if you commit adultery, you're sinning against your husband. You're culpable for this. And so he is elevating husband and wife. He's elevating the institution of marriage. That the question is not about caveats of getting out of it, but what is God's intended purpose in marriage? It is intimacy and it is permanence. Then he introduces the idea of remarriage in that text about remarrying. All right, now if we were just to stop right here and if this were the only text in the New Testament about remarriage, you may conclude that, okay, any divorce is adulterous and any remarriage is adulterous. It's just, he does, Mark doesn't go any further than this. However, if you look at the rest of the New Testament, you, you start to see that, again, there are allowances based on the curse, based on sin, that allow for divorce and remarriage. Primarily, you see it in Matthew 19, which is the parallel text to this one in Mark, only that goes into more detail. And you see it from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. <clears throat> so what I want to do now is step back. Part two, don't get worried, I won't go all day here. But we, we've looked at what Mark is saying here in, in discipleship. And I want to look at six principles of divorce and remarriage. These are all grounded biblically. They're all informed with wisdom. And then practically we see that the, they're nuanced as the church has worked these out, all right? So grounded in scripture. Six principles. Principle number one, and this is the point Mark is really making. Principle number one, marriage is the sacred union before the face of God between one man and one woman that both reflects and points to Christ's love for the church and should never be broken. That's a long one, so if you're writing it down, I'll say it again. Marriage, we got to start here. Before we get into divorce and remarriage, at least lay the groundwork. Marriage is the sacred union before the face of God between one man and one woman that both reflects and points to Christ's love for the church and should never be broken. That was God's intended purpose in marriage. We're all affected by the fall. We all experience the curse and every relationship experiences that as well. So accommodations are made in God's grace because of covenant breaking that happens because of the curse, because of the fall. But if you look at Ephesians 5, marriage is meant to be a beautiful picture of Christ giving himself for the church, of laying down his life to present his bride holy and blameless before God. It is a proclamation of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel that draws it down and we can look at it and see it there. That at its heart is a relationship above honoring the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. The next is the covenant you have with your husband, with your wife. And its intent before the face of God is permanency and intimacy. But principle two, because of the curse, because of sin, 
Principle number two is divorce is always a result of sin, but it is not always sinful. Divorce is always a result of sin, but it is not always sinful. That is to say, is every divorce the product of sin? Yes. Is every divorce therefore sinful? No. I make the distinction this way because you look, again, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. There is an innocent party in divorce. And divorce is allowable for that person. We'll just go ahead and get it out of the way. When I say innocent party, it's not that there's only one sinner in a marriage. It's both people are sinners. Both people. But there is someone who breaks a covenant. And that person who breaks the covenant is the guilty party. The one who doesn't is innocent. And for that one, divorce is allowable. It is not sin. You look at the example of Mary and Joseph for just as an example. Joseph betrothed to Mary. She is expecting this child. And of course, before the angel visits him, he thinks, well, she's been unfaithful. That's, that's the only possible explanation. And it says that Joseph was a righteous man. And because he was a righteous man, he decided to just divorce her quietly. It, it, was, he was, it was a righteous thing to do. It was a good thing to do, to divorce her quietly. Instead of making a public spectacle out of it. So we'll look at the permissible reasons for divorce, but when someone has been divorced for permissible reasons and they are the innocent party in that divorce, we should not treat them as if they are living in sin. I think there is, because we hold marriage in such high esteem, and we should, sometimes there is this carryover that when someone is divorced, they have been sinned against, and they were divorced, they're not marked with some sort of scarlet letter because of that. There is a permissible reason for them to divorce, and it is not sin for them to, to move forward with it. I know some people that will make some uncomfortable, will be disagreeable with. But all divorce is because of sin, but not all divorce is sinful. Principle number three then, divorce is permitted but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. Divorce is permitted, but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. Matthew 19, 3 through 9. That's where you go. Matthew gives that exception clause. It works this way. Because sexual sin breaks the marriage covenant. Because sex, becoming one flesh, is like the oath-signing covenant of the marriage. I'm just speaking of it in theological terms. That is what it is. Like the covenant renewal, the oath signing of the covenant. And to be married to someone and to break that covenant by having sex with someone who's not your partner in marriage is breaking that covenant. You have broken the covenant. Because of sin, because of this, there is an allowance for the, the innocent party when that covenant is broken for them to get out of that covenant. All right? Matthew includes this exception. Mark doesn't because I think it's already they have such a broad view of divorce that it's already assumed. And so Mark is just limiting it. 
Matthew tells us what that one exception is. Again, divorce is permitted but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. And again, I just, I think we do disservice. There's some who will find themselves in that situation. Some of you have found yourself in that situation. And you've decided to reconcile and try to work on that marriage. And that's great. But I think to put that burden on someone that they must do that is to put a burden on them that the Lord himself is not putting on them. If divorce is permissible, it is permissible in those situations. Principle four, divorce is permitted as the practical outcome of desertion by an unbelieving partner. Principle number four, divorce is permitted as the practical outcome of desertion by an unbelieving partner. 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 16 is where we see that. And again, it's just the practical outcome. He says if you're, if you're unequally yoked, if there's a believer married to an unbeliever, whether you entered into covenant that way or in your marriage one comes to Christ and the other doesn't, he says you should remain in that marriage. That's what you should do is remain in that marriage. The children are sanctified by that marriage. By one believing parent. It says the children are called holy or sanctified in that marriage. And also the Lord very well might use that marriage to call the unbelieving spouse to the Lord. So he tells you you need to remain that. But if the unbelieving spouse takes off, deserts the believer, he says you are free to let that one go. You are free to let them go, and the covenant is dissolved. These are the two exceptions. This is what Protestants have generally said. This is what the Westminster Confession lies out before us. By sexual immorality and by desertion from an unbeliever. Those are the list, and that's where the list ends. (laughs) Principle number five. Remarriage is not required but is permissible for the innocent party when divorce was biblically permissible. Remarriage is not required but is permissible for the innocent party when divorce was biblically permissible. Mark makes it more than plain. It is adultery to remarry someone if you've divorced someone in a non-biblically permissible way through the two caveats we just gave. But for the one who is the innocent party in that and has experienced divorce as the innocent party in one of these permissible ways, they have a freedom to remarry. I would say this, before we move on to our last one, the principle is that the covenant of marriage is meant to be permanent, but it, it can be dissolved. The very fact that God says, you know, what, God has, what Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate, assumes the fact it can be separated. I, I've heard pastors say, and I, I, I'm sure it's well-meaning, but it puts an extra weight and a burden on the idea of telling someone they should never be remarried, even if they were the innocent party in a divorce. And I've heard it said this, well, God still sees you as married. (laughs) 
no, divorce is divorce. It ends the marriage. It, it, it is a dissolvable covenant. The one who is the innocent party and has experienced divorce because of that is free to remarry. Is it always the wise thing to do? Is it always prudent? No, every case is going to be different. But again, I think, and there's people I respect greatly and been influenced by who, who would say, yes, but it's better not to remarry as if a testimony issue. And I think that just puts an extra burden and weight that scripture does not put on them, that we should not put on them. All right, last principle. If you're new here, this is very different than how we normally preach and work through a text. But we've come to a couple topics that people want to skip. And I think it's important that we look on it and we have an idea. We looked at hell last week. We look at divorce and remarriage this week. That we understand what does God's word say that we uphold and protect and fight for marriages. But when they do fall apart and we see divorce what is permissible reasons for divorce and then we don't hold someone to a different standard and judge them in a way that scripture itself wouldn't all right principle number six those divorced and remarried for unpermissible reasons should stay married to their current spouse repent of sin and receive forgiveness so if you divorce and you had no grounds for it and you got remarried and the lord convicts you of that Scripture would say, well, you need to stay married to who you're married to at that point. Repent of sin and receive God's forgiveness. <clears throat> All right. To the single and not yet married, take heed of God's word. Be prepared if the Lord leads you into a marriage. You're part of a community with many married couples. Be an encouragement to them in the right direction and then I would say thrive in your singleness to the glory of God don't sit on the sidelines don't use it as as a reason to sort of be on the sidelines but but take your singleness and thrive in it the unique situation take your unique gifts and serve the church to the glory of God with it to the married stay married (laughs) Guard your marriage. Don't think that you're above falling. Don't think that because you love your wife and things are going good, that you can't be susceptible to temptation. Spend time, work on marriage. If you're here and you are contemplating divorce, if things are moving that way in your heart and your mind, See me. Seek someone out who can help and you talk to. You'll be met, not with condemning, judgmental words. We're all fallen people. Relationships are tricky. The fall has turned them upside down their head. They take work. If people around you can help, but don't pursue the way of divorce. See, allow God to help you in that. All right. To those who are divorced on biblical grounds, I know there's some here. As your leadership, we want you to know that we don't see you with some sort of scarlet letter, that you have done something wrong. 
Yes, was sin part of your marriage? Certainly. As the innocent party, though, divorce is not sinful for you. We, we want to receive you warmly and affectionately and come around you and encourage you and bless you. And so don't consider yourself as second rate and, and, and we will, with all our effort, not, not treat you or approach you that way. You would find grace and fellowship. Then finally, to those who have sinfully divorced or whose sin has caused the divorce and, and, and you're now remarried. I would say take refuge in the cross. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. We see in this text, it is not a light thing. It is not a small thing to tear down and undermine what God has joined together. But the cross of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness there is not just for light and small things. It is offered for big sins and for heavy things. So you need to have a genuinely contrite heart. True repentance must be made. And then believe in Christ's forgiveness and pardon that is offered. Broken in a contrite heart, the Lord will not deny. <clears throat> so, Redeemer, as a church then, we look at this. We want to have an understanding, a bit of a theology for divorce and remarriage and what that looks like. What we really want is a strong theology of marriage and to work hard on strong marriages. Might we be a church that takes seriously the glory of God in our marriages as a relationship second only to our relationship with the Lord. Might we work hard to honor our husbands, honor our wives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> Lord, we are clear on your created intention for marriage. It's a reflection of the gospel and of you, Lord. I pray that would be worked into our hearts and our lives. Lord, we also are sensitive and understand we live in a sin-cursed world. And not just sin out there, we, we all find it in ourselves. Lord, so I pray that we would be wise in our counsel. We would be gracious and warm in our understanding towards others. That we wouldn't make a burden on people heavier than what the scripture has set. Lord, we would understand in Christ there is forgiveness. So I pray you give us a well-rounded understanding of it. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that indeed he did give himself for the church that though we are unfaithful, he is indeed faithful. That is where we rest and that is our hope. I encourage you to take a moment.